Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. I'm Jim Dunn. I'm co-editor of the journal, and I'm based at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. Today, I've got Professor Yvonne Kelly with me, who's with the ESR Center, International Center for Life Course Studies at uh, University College London. And Yvonne is the lead author, along with John Kelly and Amanda Sacker, of a paper in our November issue called Time for Bed, Associations with Cognitive Performance in Seven-Year-Old Children, a Longitudinal Population-Based Study. Welcome, Yvonne. Good morning. Thanks for being with us today. So um, I wanted to uh, jump right in and ask you if you can just tell me, what did you find in this study? We found that children who didn't have regular bedtimes uh, were more likely to have lower scores um, in terms of their cognitive developmental scores. So things like reading, maths, and spatial ability scores were lower for children who didn't go to bed at regular times um, during the week. Wow. Well, as a parent of uh, a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, um, <laughs> I, I find a paper like this very interesting. Um, who were the families that, you, uh, that were involved in this study? The children were from um, a long-going, um, large-scale, uh, population-based study called the Millennium Cohort Study, which is based in the UK. And for this particular um, paper, we were looking at data on over 10,000 children from the Millennium Cohort Study. And we had data on them from, uh, from birth right through to age seven. So we, we analyzed the data from, from, from birth time, from when they were age three, five, and seven years of age. That's great. And what motivated you and your colleagues to do this particular study? Well, there's a huge amount of literature which looks at um, associations between uh, bedtimes and sleep times and amount of sleep that uh, people get, particularly in, in sort of early adulthood and adolescence and also um, later on in adulthood. And, you know, a large literature had linked sleep and quantities of sleep to cognitive performance and educational attainments in young people. But there was a gap, basically, in, in the literature, uh, looking or sort of taking large population-based studies and looking at uh, markers of cognitive development um, in early childhood. So... Uh, we had those data available in the MCS, so we took advantage of that and looked at the relationships. Oh, that's fascinating. So really, there had been very little done on children of this age prior to your study. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like large-scale population studies, very little done. There were some smaller um, studies, you know, clinically-based samples, so on and so forth, and some small experimental studies as well where they tinkered, you know, they, they lengthened the amount of sleep children got or they shortened the amount of sleep that children got to see if that correlated with um, markers of cognitive development. Um, but there hadn't, it's, of course, it's difficult to extrapolate findings from those smaller studies to um, general population samples, particularly if they're small studies based on clinically on clinical samples, you know, small samples of, of, of children from various hospital clinics. It's quite difficult to extrapolate those findings to general population settings, so that was our chance, really, with the MCS data. That's really incredible. And, you, and in fact, the, the study was uh, very large, nearly 12,000 children involved. Yes, yeah. One, one of the other interesting things I found about the study was um, that there were some pretty interesting differences between girls and boys, different kinds of sleep patterns, 
had different kinds of outcomes. And, and for some things, boys were unaffected, but girls were pretty strongly affected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you find this a lot, actually, in studies um, of markers of cognitive and, and also social and emotional adjustments as well. There are often gender differences um, in, in the patterning of those things by various exposures. So here we found that boys' um, scores in general, were less affected by their bedtimes and the regularity of their bedtimes. Uh, there were some patterns there, but you know the, the absolute differences across the range of bedtimes, for example, were, were smaller for boys than for girls. And then when we found on statistical adjustment that for, 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 for some of the analysis, at least, the differences in boys were uh, reduced to statistical non-significance, um, particularly when we took account of um, socioeconomic factors. So this isn't, it's not unusual to find these gendered differences in these sorts of associations. Um, from drawing from the literature, um, you know, there's, there's a whole kind of um, base in psychology which suggests that girls might be a bit more susceptible to uh, ele elements of the environment that, you know, you can think of as a sort of psychosocial elements of the environment, which is, uh, of the environment sort of stresses, um, and so on and so forth. And not having a regular bedtime or having a late bedtime might itself be a marker of kind of chaos or stress within the family setting. So if it is, you know, if it is basically just another marker of stress in the family setting, then it might not be too large a leap to think that that's why we see gender effects. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in a sense, then uh, it's could you also say that some of the outcomes might be attributable to the chaos and family stress as much as they are to the sleep? Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, you know, we did see um, a sort of, obviously, as as we often do, we saw reasonable attenuations of the relationships, uh, but we also saw that a lot of the relationships stayed, um, you know, statistically significant. And, and there was also um, evidence of sort of you know clinically relevant significance of those differences as well. So you know we 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 made an, an awful lot of adjustments as you'll see when you look at the paper. We were trying to yeah. really get to grips with the the family context and the social economic, but also the dynamics of the family. You know what's going on in the home, and the sorts of things that also might. Um, influence the quantity and the quality of sleep that children get so things like you know having a tv in their bedroom uh so on and so forth you know we were looking right across the piece to find everything that we thought that might confound or indeed mediate the relationship between bedtimes and um children's cognitive development to get rid of as much of that noise as we possibly could we still found these independent these quite stubborn independent relationships with markers of bedtimes and markers of children's um, cognitive development. Well, that's yeah, that's very interesting. So, can you tell us also? You mentioned that you had controlled for quite a, a wide panoply of things, um, but one of the things that comes to mind when you read a paper like this is what was the influence of socioeconomic status or social class on the results? Can yeah, you talk I a little mean, bit about that? Yeah, that they were. I mean, adjusting for economic. Um, backgrounds for the family, educational levels with you know the, the, the parents and carers made the biggest difference. So any markers of socioeconomic disadvantage that we put in the models made the biggest difference in terms of attenuating the relationships. Um, and you know that that makes sense because you know we know that 
bedtimes and the amount of sleep children get is heavily socially patterned. And we also know, of course, that, um, you know, children's cognitive development is heavily socially influenced. So, you know, it, it wasn't a surprise that on adjustment for, for those markers, we saw reasonable attenuation of relationships. Right. You know, something that comes to mind, too, is that, uh, and you might not be able to address this directly in the study or, uh, or in, in the kind of data that you have, but uh, if families are living in a chaotic kind of environment and uh, and they're trying to look for one thing to concentrate on to try and reduce that chaos, maybe bedtime is one of those things that if you could actually establish it, so that it might work in both directions, in other words, right? If you could establish a regular bedtime, that it might actually reduce some of the chaos. Well, thinking in terms of sort of negativity as, as far as chaos, um, you know, sort of chaotic family settings, but some aspects of chaos go right across the social spectrum. So, you know, it, it, it's not just related to social disadvantage. That There are sort of uh, different schools of quote-unquote parenting, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and uh, there are different characteristics of those, and, and it, it's not always, um, it's not always the case that certain parenting practices are, are uh, confined to certain social groups. Well, that's a very good point, actually, because I know I've seen many um, regression lines drawn through scatter plots of social class and uh, and some child outcome, and they often have a very, very wide scatter to them. Yeah. They- and- and is that true, do you think, of, of the kinds of things that you were looking at in your study? Yeah, I, I, I think so, because um, there are different schools of thought. I mean, a, a lot of the things that we've factored in here, and you could think of bedtimes and regularity of bedtimes as being a kind of quite a classic kind of epidemiological exposure, if you like, you know, um, but in, in terms of not having enough sleep. So going to bed at different times is a marker of uh, erratic sleep patterns. Um, going to bed late and, and getting up early is a marker of not having enough hours of sleep because we know that you know, sleep is important for our health and functioning and so on and so forth. But you could also think of it as a, as a kind of a, a marker of something that's going in the, on in the home, you know, sort of a, a family contextual marker. And we're very aware of that. It's quite, it's quite a noisy marker in that way, you know, it could be picking up on all sorts of things. Oh, that's really, yeah, and I think that's really interesting and a good takeaway from, from a paper like this that you might not get by just glancing at it superficially, because indeed you would think, okay, this is about the quantity of sleep, but the point was that it was not only the quantity of sleep, it was the the regularity of the bedtime and the time of the bedtime. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because we, you know, we know that the children are getting up roughly the same time because they're all school-aged children and they're going, you know, they're getting out of bed about seven o'clock in the morning. So it, it's it's relating to that. I think that the, the point about the regularity is really key here because, and that makes it makes a lot of sense from a kind of biological point of view. If you're varying the amount of sleep you get night to night, so if you you know if your kids are going to bed at say seven o'clock one night and ten o'clock the next, eight o'clock the next, and nine o'clock the next, you're sort of switching around with the amount of sleep that they're getting from night to night. But you're also um, it's also sort of interfering with or interacting with their body clocks so the circadian rhythm of course which governs yeah. sleep and everything else uh, so it induces a kind of a state akin to jet lag if you like we feel that there's a, a definite biological plausibility there in terms of why irregular sleep um, or, or irregular bedtimes you know might link to 
cognitive performance and, and it not just be a spurious kind of relationship because irregular sleep is, is linked to a whole set of unobserved social factors. Well, that's, yeah, no, it does indeed. That's great. Uh, coming out of all of this, and I know that this has received a lot of, of media attention, not surprisingly, uh, considering how many, how many households that it, uh, that it would affect and that, that are concerned about these kinds of things. Um, what kind of action should be taken uh, based on this research and by whom do you think? It would probably be fairly simple um, for health practitioners to, to build it into kind of routine monitoring checks for young children. Uh, that you know that that would be a very simple thing to do. Um, in many you know many national settings have have routine kind of surveillance checks for for various things for children. If these relationships are quote unquote true, then obviously um, early child development has has you know implications for later life health. So you know that there could be there could be big payoffs to some quite simple. Uh, screening questions and associated with that interventions around around sleep and about getting routines around sleep. That sounds great. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Yvonne. Um, it was really, really great to hear your insights on this paper. And uh, I certainly uh, had, had an interesting conversation with my spouse about it the other day. Uh, <laughs> Because it has a lot of relevance for us, as it does for many, many others, and uh, you know, I mean, everybody's trying to be a better parent, and uh, and so it's it's really great to see a paper like this. Thanks again for being with us here today. It was Yvonne Kelly from the uh, University College London, and the paper is "Time for Bed: Associations with Cognitive Performance in Seven-Year-Old Children," which appears in the November issue of the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. Signing off, it's Jim Dunn, co-editor of the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. 